0: Uh, We want to start our time with actually a a quick video, so let's turn our attention to this video. He is the football phenom everyone is talking about tonight, Denver Bronco quarterback Tim Tebow, making magic with one astounding comeback win after another. He's an evangelical Christian, and the way he kneels in prayer has become a sensation all around the world with people, even pets, so-called doing the Tebow. ABC's Dan Harris has the story.
1: By any earthly yardstick, Tim Tebow is, at best, a mediocre NFL quarterback. In fact, he has one of the worst passing records in the league. For most of yesterday's game, he got sacked. Tebow in trouble. And his throws were wobbly. Tebow with a rainbow pass. Going to nobody or, worse, to the wrong team. And it is picked off. And yet, in the final minutes, Tebow and the Denver Broncos pulled off a come-from-behind victory. their sixth in a row. A streak even non-believers are calling miraculous. I guess first and foremost, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And In his post-game that, press conference, Tebow made clear who he thanks for this victory. If you believe, you know, un- unbelievable things can sometimes be possible. While Tebow's pastor says God is the reason for this winning streak, Tebow has never claimed that, and anyway, it's tough to prove. However, scientists say Tebow's secret may be something else. Look at this play. After the receiver Demarius Thomas missed a pass, Tebow gave him some encouraging words. And look at his press conference where he gives credit to everybody else. I think you and my teammates made me look a lot better than I am. Research shows the most compassionate people, like Tebow, are more effective at motivating others, better than, say, the boss who yells. What this new science of altruism and cooperation is finding is that highly cooperative, other-oriented, compassionate, empathetic individuals Their teams perform better, their organizations are healthier. Tebow's leadership style contains lessons for all of us. Remember that receiver he encouraged? In the fourth quarter, he scored a touchdown that turned the game around. Tebow takes off, throws to the end zone, touchdown! Dan Harris, ABC News.
0: Some of us are still Tebowing. (laughs) It gives me great pleasure and joy to introduce... um, our guest speaker today. Let's go ahead and welcome our very own elder, Jim. Thanks, Sonny. So many of us remember Tim Tebow's magical season. How could a quarterback with such a malign throwing arm engineer so many last-minute come from behind victories? Everyone loves a surprise fairy tale ending. This is the stuff that Disney movies are made from we all enjoy a good underdog story but before Tebow before Rocky Balboa before Daniel LaRusso before Cinderella there was Gideon let's set the stage by starting with Judges 6 the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. God's people, the Israelites, are in a world of pain and poverty. The archenemy here is the Midianites, a fierce nomadic tribe who made their home wherever they could rob, and oppress the local inhabitants, and that included the Israelites. So for many years, the Israelites have been struggling and contending with the Midianites, and it is here, in this humble and even humiliating beginning, that we find our underdog, Gideon. Judges 6:11 says, "The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Bezrite, where his son Gideon." was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, unless you're an old-school farmer, it's easy to gloss over this verse and not think anything of it. But to understand how dire Gideon's situation was, we need to understand how this is supposed to be done. Threshing is the ancient process of separating grain from straw. It was usually done on a threshing floor out in the open and usually at the top of a hill so that the wind could assist in the separation process. It was generally done on a flat surface made of wood, and oxen would walk over the grain to thresh it. But here, Gideon is doing it himself rather than having cattle tread it, which means he probably has only a small amount of grain. Gideon's in a wine press rather than on a wooden threshing floor, and he's doing it remotely under a tree out of view. Why? His fear of the Midianites. Can we relate to this, something that drives us to live our lives in fear and insecurity? And so we convince ourselves that just surviving, barely making ends meet, and just getting through the day is an okay way to live. And we may even deceive ourselves into thinking that we're content with the status quo. We all have our version of the Midianites. It could be living with credit card debt, a serious illness, a broken relationship. So what happens when things look dark and hopeless? How do we overcome this? Let's return to Gideon's story and find out what happens. As we read in Judges 6, God, through the angel of the Lord, makes his appearance. This is called a theophany, a God appearance. And believe it or not, we still have these today. God often uses the ordinary as a disguise for the divine. We often think that if God speaks to us, it's through a burning bush or a bright light, or that it only happens when we summit the koalas on a prayer retreat. But it can happen as you sit in the office on a Tuesday morning, or as you do laundry or wash your car. It can happen at any time. It could happen today. So we need to be on the lookout at all times. And this is why I appreciate preparing for messages. I become hypervigilant as to what God is doing so that I can see what he wants me to share. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, I notice that my God sightings actually do increase. And this is how we should be all the time, seeking God in our ordinary, daily, and sometimes even mundane lives. It seems like common sense to know what God is calling us to do. We need to open our eyes to be aware of his presence. And what does God tell Gideon while he's cowering in the shadows of the trees, struggling to thresh his grain? Judges 6.12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Wait, what? What? The angel of the Lord calls Gideon, who's hiding in the shadows, just barely making ends meet, a mighty warrior? What's going on? God calls Gideon a mighty warrior, even though he wasn't one, at least not yet. And that's the point. God sees the best in us. What could be, what will be, if we follow his leading. Gideon responds in disbelief though he is rather polite. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. To understand what Gideon is referring to, we need to realize that at this time, Israel was not a unified nation. Rather, it was comprised of quarreling tribes. As background, many years before, Jacob, as a reminder, he's the one that wrestled with God, Jacob chose to bless his younger grandchild, Ephraim, first, rather than his older grandchild, Manasseh. Thus, Manasseh, even though he was older, was viewed as less favored and less blessed. So, what's worse than simply losing? Losing when you're expected to win. And so, Gideon of Manasseh saw himself as the least of the least. The world told Gideon that he was merely a scared farmer, but God told Gideon that he was a mighty warrior. Many times we focus on who the world says we are. But in reality, we should be focusing on who God says we are. So how do you view yourself? Sometimes it's easy to think the worst of ourselves. Maybe like Gideon, we think that we're the least likely to to succeed. Or that our life has passed us by. That our best days are behind us. Note that who we really are is not always the same as who we feel we are. Gideon did not feel like a brave warrior, even though in God's eyes, he was one. We need to be careful that we do not allow our emotions to deceive us as to who we really are. It's critical to know who we really are, who God says we are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the head and not the tail. You are more... Than a conqueror. As author Priscilla Shira notes, trusting God and walking in his pronouncement of potential is the foundation of spiritual victory. Given Gideon's confusions as to who he really is, he proceeds to ask God for assurances. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, Sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. God graciously and patiently gave Gideon assurances. God loves us so much that he will accommodate us, even when we are lacking in faith. And that is what is so comforting. Our Heavenly Father will meet us where we are. If we are uncertain, we can ask God for assurances, and he will provide them. After God provided Gideon with the necessary assurances, Gideon obeys God by tearing down his father's altar to the idol Baal and building God an altar. And these actions are essentially calling out the Midianites and the neighboring tribes who are worshiping Baal. So we pick up the story starting in Judges 6.33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon has been transformed from a timid farmer into a courageous defender of God as he gathers and leads the Israelites into battle against the Midianites and their other enemies. And what does our valiant warrior do next? He asks for assurances yet again. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. That is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, in the comforts of our seats here, it's easy to be critical of Gideon. God had already provided Gideon with assurances, yet Gideon had to ask, God a second and a third time for confirmation. And again, God demonstrated his patience by accommodating Gideon's need for confirmation. And this helps us to understand that faith is, not the absence of, is, faith is not having the absence of fear or doubt, but rather having faith means moving forward in the direction that God has called us to even while we have our fear and doubt. In the midst of our uncertainty, we can trust and be confident that our God will provide for us. So let's see what happens next. Judges 7 says, Early in the morning, Jerubbel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 men remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. If Gideon is anything like me, I'm sure he was thinking to himself, Wait, God, you called for me to overcome the Midianites, and I obeyed. As an answer to prayer, you provided me with 32,000 men. Now, still not enough probably, but if we're lucky and we're smart, we might be able to fight this to a draw. But then you tell me that I have too many men and you're going to take some away? What's going on here? I thought we're trying to win. So 32,000 men becomes 10,000 men, but God says this is still too many. Continuing on, Judges 7 says, So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as dogs laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So now we've gone from 32,000 to 10,000, then to 300. If I'm Gideon, I'm not liking my odds. God has whittled down Gideon's fighting force, from 32,000 strong to a bare minimum of 300. Credit this to Gideon, even though he may not have understood what God was doing, he still obeyed. He sent the remaining men home and kept only 300. And as Gideon took a step of faith, God continued to give Gideon assurances. In fact, whereas Gideon had asked for assurances previously, God initiates... This next, reassurance. Judges 7, 8 says, Now the camp Midian laid below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. As an aside, I want to point out that the Bible specifies that Gideon went with a fellow named Purah. Why does the Bible even mention Purah? Seems like a rather unimportant detail that could have easily been left out. But God orchestrates for people to come into our lives at critical times to help us out. Continuing on in Judges 7, The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. To provide some color on this dream, barley bread was a staple of the poor. The Israelites who were being oppressed by the Midianites had been forced to eat barley bread. So this dream represents the impoverished Israelites crushing their Midianite oppressors. Now we get to the good part, the action scene. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets and from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men, I'm sorry, Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches, the, um, the torches in their left hand, And holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Gideon and his 300 men end up routing the thousands of Midianites and killing their leaders. So let's put this victory in perspective. Gideon started with only 32,000 soldiers while the Midianite army was 135,000 strong, more than four times that of Gideon. Gideon definitely was an underdog. But then God intervenes. He doesn't tell Gideon to try harder or to find more men. Instead, he does the complete opposite. He tells Gideon he has too many men. Under God's instruction, the ratio of bad guys to good guys goes from a challenging four-to-one to a ridiculous 450 to one. This seems like a recipe for certain disaster. But God was able to use Gideon and 300 faithful men who were armed only with torches, trumpets, and empty jars to crush an army of 135,000 soldiers. Although this stunning victory may warm our hearts, Gideon's story is not just an isolated feel-good fairy tale from Once Upon a Time we see this same story play out throughout the Bible time and time again. Moses, a shepherd in the boonies, who leads God's people out of slavery and demolishes Pharaoh's army. David, the little shepherd boy, who takes down Goliath, the giant. The feeding by the disciples of thousands with only five loaves of bread and two fish. God loves to use the weak to demonstrate his power. God loves to use underdogs. 1 Corinthians 1 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So back to the question of why did God whittle down Gideon's army? The simple answer is so that we would see less of Gideon and more of God. And this is why God relishes using our weakness to demonstrate his strength. Gideon's story also emphasizes the importance of worldview which Mike talked about last week and we discussed earlier this year. In the world's eyes, Gideon was merely a frightened farmer with a ragtag group of 300 men, armed only with trumpets, torches, and empty jars. But in God's eyes, Gideon was a mighty warrior called by the master of the universe. The world's way is to be strong, to power through it, to have grit. But God's way is to lift up our weaknesses to him, and to let him fight our battle. And this is why God's worldview is so drastically different than the world's worldview, to the point that commentators have talked about God's upside-down kingdom. The world focuses on the three-dimensional world that it can see, touch, and understand. But God is focused on the fourth dimension, the spiritual reality that is unseen yet at work. Ephesians 6 12 explains for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what tools resources and sources of strength do we look to the world looks at physical strength outward beauty natural talent human knowledge and reasoning wealth but God's weapons are the Holy Spirit, God's Word, faith, humility, truth, and prayer. As Christians, we may listen to this and think, well, I read my Bible and I pray, so I'm, I'm good on this. But God is saying that prayer and turning to Him should be the first resort, not the last resort. Not only when you have no other options, as in, well, I guess there's nothing else to do but pray. We fancy ourselves as being clever and resourceful. We come up with plans and backup plans. And some of us are especially clever, and so we come up with backup plans to our backup plans. But God is saying, I got this. If he is going to move in our lives, we need to give him the room to move. God won't force himself upon us or our lives. So we've talked about Gideon's battles. What about the battles that you're facing? How do you overcome the Midianites in your life? What is an area where you only have 300? An area where you feel deficient? It could be with our time and our finances. It could involve a job or a relationship. So what do we do? Let me ask it a different way. What are we focused on? Are we focused on the wrong thing as the saying goes are we looking at the size of our problem or the size of our god and i'm reminded of chris tomlin's song whom shall i fear i know who goes before me i know who stands behind the god of angel armies is always by my side the one who reigns forever he is a friend of mine my strength is in your name for you alone can save You will deliver me. Yours is the victory. Whom shall I fear? So we can lift up our battle to God and let Him fight on our behalf. Not only that, but the irony is that in God's upside down kingdom, you may actually be in a better position spiritually if you're down on yourself rather than high on yourself. If we are down, we may be more willing to allow God to fight for us rather than trying to rely on our own strength efforts, or wiles. However, if we are prideful and self-confident, God may need to humble us first before he is able to lift us up. Gideon's story is about the intersection of our weakness and God's strength. Our weakness is a key to unlocking God's strength. Which brings me to my recent Gideon story. Dave Oyatomori has observed that in preparation for giving a message, God will often do certain things in his life to help him better understand the upcoming message. And as I recently found out, this is very true. Originally, I was supposed to speak next week on Samson, and Dave was scheduled to speak this week on Gideon. However, due to a scheduling conflict, we ended up switching weeks. So I traded Samson for Gideon, and I thought I was getting the better deal. After all, Gideon was a powerful warrior who pulled off a stunning victory, while Samson was seduced, became blind, and then suffered a crushing death. (laughs) Can't wait for next week. (laughs) Therefore, I was waiting for God to help me win a dramatic victory in my life so that I could better share with you how Gideon must have felt when he won that stunning victory. Which brings me to a few months ago. I was sitting in my office, contentedly reviewing a contract, just an ordinary day at work, and then Susan called. She was on her spring break and had taken our daughter Lydia on a play date. She told me that everyone was having fun, and I gently reminded her that some of us had work to do, and so (laughs) we hung up. (laughs) About five minutes later, Susan calls again, and I thought she was going to tell me about how beautiful it is outside and how she wishes that I were there with her. Instead, Susan is out of breath, and she faintly tells me that she thinks she's broken her wrist. I definitely was not expecting that. We rushed her to the ER, and after a few hours and a large number of x-rays, we learned that she had broken her wrist, as well as her big toe, her knee, and her rib. Credit my wife, if she's going to do anything, she's going to do it in a big way. Now, I know that dealing with broken bones is not at all fun, but being a caretaker is also not much fun. And I quickly learned that it takes at least six weeks for broken bones to heal, which is a long time to be a patient and a super long time to be a caretaker. And I remember God just showing me certain things. Um, That first night, I was physically and emotionally drained, and I cried out to God for help. I'm not sure whether I can take this, God, especially for six weeks. And I remember God showing me very clearly the lesson of Gideon, that his strength is demonstrated in our weakness. And God showed me that because caretaking was an acknowledged weakness of mine, it was so easy for me to immediately turn to God for help. And I felt God encouraging me and embracing me as only a loving father can do. And I knew that God's strength would be showcased in Susan's physical weakness and my emotional weakness. And I was able to sleep well that night. Now don't get me wrong, it wasn't a cakewalk after that. Even in the first days especially, it was, it was really difficult. It was hard enough for Susan and me just to get through the day. It didn't take much for us, or especially me, to feel pushed to our limits. Like the day after Susan's fall, when I thought that due to misguided advice from our internet service provider, um, I thought our home computer had been infected with a virus. Or the following day, when our electricity went out late at night, and it appeared that we had a serious serious electrical problem. Each time, I remember feeling a sense of hopelessness and thinking to myself, I just can't take it anymore. But I would remember the Gideon principle of how God's strength is demonstrated in our weakness, and I would cry out to God for help. And just as Gideon had his companion, Pirol, to walk alongside him and encourage him at critical times, God sent Piroz into our lives at just the right moment. Like Danny in my IT department, who patiently walked me through computer diagnostics, and Joe, the electrician, who spent his late Saturday night with me on FaceTime, walking me through so that I could get the electricity up and running again, and didn't even charge me. Like Gideon, I was given opportunities to either trust God and let him provide, or to try to rely on my own strength and efforts and struggle to find a solution. At our first visit with the orthopedic surgeon, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I planned to mention that my brother-in-law is a surgeon in hopes of encouraging the ortho-surgeon to provide the best treatment possible. As I waited with Susan in the doctor's office, I felt God ask me, Do you trust me? And I responded, yeah, of course I do. And then I heard God say, then there's no need to name drop. And I remember pushing this thought aside and trying to pretend that I didn't hear God. And sadly, I failed to trust God. The doctor walked in, and I name dropped. And afterwards, I felt convicted. The good thing is that even if we fail, it's not game over. God will give us another opportunity. And the following day, I was chatting with a coworker, who asked which orthosurgeon Susan was seeing. And he mentioned that he was close friends with the premier ortho surgeon in the state and that if I liked, he would make a call and that he would be able to let Susan see this top-notch doctor. My initial instinct was to jump at this opportunity But then I heard God ask me again, do you trust me? And this time I knew that God would provide, that there was no need for me to try to rely on my own efforts or connections to try to get what God had already promised he would provide for. The only connection I needed was my Heavenly Father. And sure enough, God delivered. At our first appointment, our orthosurgeon studied the x-rays and informed us that Susan almost certainly would need to have wrist surgery. So we prepared ourselves for the inevitable. The following week, we went to see the doctor who took another x-ray, and he studied it. And he told us that Susan's wrist bone had not moved at all, and that therefore no surgery was needed. We were completely blown away by God's provision. Going back to how God uses Purals in our lives, God also showed me that I needed to be a all in other people's lives. And when I returned to work a few weeks after Susan's fall, I had a desire to bless others in the same way that Danny, the IT guy, and Joe, the electrician, had blessed me. In fact, my first day driving into work, I literally had this huge smile on my face, and I just couldn't wait to get into the office so that I could serve my coworkers to the best of my God-given ability. So who can we be a pura to? Someone in our family? At work? Maybe even at Costco? About four weeks into Susan's recovery, Susan and I were chatting, and we marveled at how things like Susan's injuries that appear from a worldly viewpoint to have the ability to demoralize us individually and to strain our marriage, have been redeemed by God to actually draw us closer to each other and to God. Susan's spring break, pun intended, had given Susan and me more time to grow closer as a couple. It allowed Susan to spend more time with Lydia, and it even allowed her to spend more time with her sister, who graciously volunteered to drive Susan to work. What was meant for evil, God uses for good. This is the power of our God. Now, I know that critics dismiss Christianity as merely a crutch for weak people. And when I was younger, I'd hear this and I'd get really upset. But now I realize that this is completely true. The only thing is that the reality is that we all are weak people who lean on crutches of our own choosing. It's just that Christ's followers lean on Christ, while others lean on chocolate alcohol, drugs, bin shopping, social media acceptance, pornography. At least believers are leaning on the only real and reliable crutch that will never let you down, Jesus Christ. What if Susan, when she was injured, had insisted on not using a crutch or had decided to lean on an unreliable or defective crutch? The results would have been disastrous. Yet spiritually speaking, many are doing exactly this and suffering the consequences. The Apostle Paul talked about his weakness, a thorn in his flesh which God would not remove. I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our our weakness is a conduit through which we experience God's strength. And we will see God move more in our lives if we allow him to do so, rather than insisting on pursuing our own plans. We should be trying to get to a point where he is always our first and only plan, even if from an earthly standpoint we do have other options. Isn't the story of Gideon and really all underdog stories a reflection of the resurrection story? Good Friday looked dark and hopeless, but God was at work, and he was orchestrating all things together to lead to Resurrection Sunday. Although it is tempting to do what is ordinary, to walk by sight and not by faith, God invites us to live a life That is extraordinary to walk by faith and not by sight and I've seen this play out in a very tangible way at Susan's work when Susan was first starting out as a teacher I would try to help her out so when she would come home and share about her challenges I did the typical guy thing try to solve her problems rather than just listening and being a lawyer I was even more convinced that I could help her stand up for her rights and defend her from injustice so whenever there was a conflict, I would counsel Susan as to what arguments she should make and try to strategize to get her fair share. Susan eventually tired of my advice and politely told me that she would take care of it her way, which in my mind meant being too nice and overly accommodating. In frustration, I agreed, and I was convinced that she would soon see the error of her ways come running back to me and beg me for my wise counsel, except that didn't happen. Instead, time and time again, I would see how she would seemingly take an approach that was weak and accommodating. And I was convinced that she was being taken advantage of. And time and time again, I would see how somehow God would work it out to her advantage. Supposedly challenging children would somehow become well-behaved children. Somehow, supposedly challenging parents would become well-behaved parents. So after seeing God's provision and protection in Susan's job, I have completely given up in even trying to give Susan any advice, at least work-related advice. And And we're both much happier and at peace knowing that God will provide as he always has. Now, I know that some of you may be thinking, okay, that sounds nice, but that's easier said than done. But God recently showed me what this is like. About a month ago, I was watching my wife trying to teach Lydia how to float on her back. As Lydia struggled to relax and stay still, God began to show me that this is how we often are with him. As you all know, to float successfully, we need to lie still in a position that feels somewhat vulnerable and trust that the laws of physics will kick in and that we'll actually end up floating. Although it may seem counterintuitive, Any efforts by us to try to force ourselves to float will actually impede our ability to float. In the same way, we need to be still, stop trying to protect ourselves, and rather trust that God, our loving Father, will provide for us. But so many of us are flailing around that we never give God a chance to do what only He can do. So if you can float on your back, then you already know what it takes let God fight on your behalf. Although many of us may be familiar with the rise of Gideon, Judges tells us also about the fall of Gideon. The end of Gideon's story in Judges 8 contains a cautionary tale for all of us, and this shows us what happens when we try to do the exact opposite of the Gideon principle and try to rely upon our own strength rather than God's. As we've discussed, Humility fosters a dependence upon God. But pride places ourselves, rather than God, on the throne in our lives. So in God's so-called upside-down kingdom, our actual liabilities are not in our areas of weakness, but actually in our areas of strength. James 4 points out, this is why scripture says, Gideon stops asking God for his guidance and instead takes control himself. Notably, in Judges 6 and 7, God and Gideon talk multiple times. But in Judges 8, Gideon has absolutely no conversation with God. And this is a warning to us, especially when we, when we start to experience some success. As we've heard, pride comes before the fall. Sadly, Gideon and Israel become inflated with false self-confidence and hubris. And all of this is captured in Judges 8:22 through 23 The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, this seems like a good response by Gideon, but subtly and significantly, Gideon did not acknowledge that God was the one who saved them from the Midianites. And by remaining silent, he implicitly accepted and agreed that he, not Gideon, not, not God, was the one who had won the victory. We earlier spoke about Jesus being our crutch, who we can lean on. Proverbs 3, 5-6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. So we are being warned to not lean on your own, and you can fill in your blank. It could be your IQ, it could be your CrossFit body, it could be your investment portfolio and 401K, or it could be your hundreds of friends and followers on social media. But we are called to lean only on Jesus Christ. So we have a choice to make. Every day, whether we know it or not, we choose whether to draw upon our own strength or God's strength. We are created to draw upon God every single day. Why does God do this? He cares most about a relationship with us. He loves us so much that he wants us to fellowship, worship, and interact with him each day, each hour, each minute of our life. Like a marriage or a relationship with a close friend, Our relationship with God needs to be cultivated on a daily basis. We can't go on autopilot. And this is why the Lord's Prayer talks about asking God for our daily bread. Like manna, we cannot store it up for tomorrow, so we don't need to depend on God tomorrow. As Joyce Meyer says, we are everything with him, but nothing without him. God is able to take ordinary and make it extraordinary. God's plan for Gideon worked because the jars were fragile. They were easily broken to allow the light to shine through it. And this is God's plan for us. Gideon's victory over the Midianites became a constant reminder to the Israelites about God's power. For many years to come, this was remembered as a night that God fought on behalf of his people. Now going back to Tim Tebow, I know that some of you may have cynically, cynically been thinking Why are we even talking about Tebow? He he doesn't even play in the NFL anymore. But this is the same as saying that the Israelites continue to backslide and be oppressed by their enemies, even after Gideon had had beaten the, the Midianites. That misses the point. The real point is that God was glorified and that he is able to do amazing things. May everything that we do point others to Christ. Tim Tebow said, I want my life to speak louder than a world record. I don't just want to leave a legacy on the field. I want to live off the field in a way that outlives me. I want my love for God and for others to shine greater than an incredible comeback moment, a heavy gold trophy, or a handful of favorable headlines. Indeed, if Tebow were still in the NFL, we'd probably be more focused on Tebow. But it becomes completely clear that God was glorified. It wasn't about Tibo or his efforts or abilities. He was only the earthen vessel, a jar of clay, that was used so that God would be glorified. Peter walked on water, and some will say, but he sank. But he walked on water. As Neil Murakami likes to say, haters gonna hate. Are we going to be distracted from the real story? God loves to use underdogs so that we see more of him and less of us. God is saying the same thing to you as he said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I'm reminded of Audio Adrenaline's underdog song. I am so weak and I'm so tired, it's hard for me to find enough strength to feed the fires that fuel my eagle, and consequently all my pride has all but died which leaves me down on my knees, back to the place I should have started from. I'm in this race to win a prize. The odds against me, the world has plans for my demise. What they don't see is that a winner is not judged by his small size, but by the substitute he picks to run the race, and mine's already won. Jesus himself was the ultimate underdog. He was born as a helpless baby in a grubby manger, then later mocked, beaten, and crucified. Yet Jesus ended up overcoming death and providing each of us a way to salvation. God demonstrated his power through the weakness of his son, Jesus. And I'm reminded of yet another song, El Shaddai, a song by Michael Card, Amy Grant, or Winans Phase 2, depending on your age and musical taste. (laughs) Through the years, you've made it clear that the time of Christ was near, though the people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. Though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. We are called to be like Jesus. If we feel like we are an underdog, then we are exactly where God is able to use us in a mighty way that will exceed our expectations. And if we don't feel like an underdog, maybe we're simply settling and not aiming for enough. God has called us to extraordinary things, things that by ourselves seem impossible. So dream big dreams, because with God, nothing is impossible. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now glory be to God by his mighty power at work within us. He is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope for. With God, the best is yet to come. For you, you may feel like it's the fourth quarter with a minute on the clock, and you're down by three. Ball is on your twenty. So, underdog, what are you going to do? Let's close in prayer. Could you please stand? Dear God, thank you for the story of Gideon's life. We're tired of trying to pretend that we're strong and don't need help. We lift up our weakness to you, and we admit and acknowledge that we need you. May you be glorified in our lives. May we take concrete steps today to entrust you with our lives. May you take our ordinary lives and make it extraordinary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you for your message.